All right, boom, we're live. Welcome to the 94th installment of the Playing the Wood podcast series. My friend Brad Pedersen is back in the house. How are you doing, Brad? Rich, I'm doing great. Really uh, grateful to see you again. I mean, I think with COVID, it's been been a minute that we didn't, <laughs> wasn't a lot of travel uh, going on. And I know this is not as good as being live and in person, but uh, just get to reconnect and uh, see your face. Yeah, we go way back. There's um, there's an organization that I've um, mentioned several times on my channel called Entrepreneurs Org, and um, we met in a forum there uh, and had hung out for was it three years maybe we did forum together? Three or four, yeah. I think yeah, that's right. Really, really good times. Awesome, you know, retreat memories. We became great friends, uh, did a lot of stuff. We unfortunately don't get to see each other as much as we did before because um, you've moved out west now. We used to both live in the GTA uh how was how was the summer for you? I, I you know I reached out when those fires were all an issue and all that sort of stuff. But was that a big deal for you guys out there? Yeah. Um, so I live in the Okanagan, British Columbia, and um, you know I, I I tell people it's it's the best place on planet Earth. If you love outdoor pursuits, it's pretty epic. Um, summers are amazing. Winters they get tons of snow, and the seasons just are are uh, they're all awesome. Uh, but we have an issue called forest fires and uh, this past year was the hottest driest summer on record um and so we had we thought we escaped it there was a lot happening in northern british columbia i don't know if you even saw it. Uh, there's a um, an app called smoke.ca and it shows where the smoke coming from and the fires but it's crazy like the northwest territories and the yukon and northern british columbia and alberta were on fire it just was this massive fires and, um, you know, which is crazy because that area has got permafrost and tundra. So to see all that open up and fire, it definitely speaks to that something's gone amok in terms of the, the way that the, the planet is is uh, uh, transitioning. So, uh, yeah, we, we thought we had gotten away with it. But uh, middle of August, I was out for dinner with uh, family. We saw a smoke plume off in the distance. By the time we got to our house at 8 o'clock that night, we saw the fire crest over the mountain across the lake from us. And there was like a huge windstorm that came through. The same wind actually that powered the uh, Lahaina fires hit the West Coast. And so everything was tinder dry. Anything that sparked up just actually got, you know, became massive. And um, we thought, well, okay, it's on the other side of the lake. It's four kilometers across, uh, no problem. And within an hour, all of a sudden we saw the our side of the lake was on fire. <laughs> We're like, wait a second, it just jumped the lake. So yeah, we got evacuated for 10 days. When we returned home, um, you know, we were watching things through our security cameras. We actually had pictures of firefighters in our backyard with hoses, hosing down the forest because we could see the flames coming up the back. So we got home. We, 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 we didn't know what to expect. Fortunately, our houses were standing, but literally the fire burnt right to the edge of the property line. Mm. And a uh, combination of extraordinary uh, firefighting uh, and an act of God, quite frankly, because, you know, the wow. entire community it should have been it burnt below us above us and in between us so yeah it was um terrifying i call it terrifying terrifying and exciting time of life for sure <laughs> terrifying <laughs> cool um so you've written a new book from <laughs> your time in the toy industry you were you were running i think i mean i'm gonna butcher this maybe you should clarify it but i think it was canada's second or third largest toy company or was it north america's second or largest toy th toy company well, my first toy company was the largest toy distribution company in Canada, um, but I crash and burned that in my last episode with you. I, I tell that story. Yeah. Um, and then I, I uh, started a new company again that was in toy manufacturing, and that became um, the second largest toy company in Canada. Spin Master Toys, clearly, they're the, you know, right. they're the shining star in this country. In fact, in the world, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're leading. But yes, um, had close to 30 years of uh, working in the industry of playthings and uh, making products that would ultimately try and put smiles on kids' faces. That was a big part of what I did. So you've taken that um, tenure, you've taken that experience, and you've put a book out. It's um, just been released. It's called Startup Santa, a toy maker's tale of 10 business lessons learned from timeless toys. Um, Got 300 odd pages. I haven't listened to it yet. I'm an audiobook guy. So when it comes out on Audible, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a credit at it and definitely have a listen to it because I know there's going to be some wisdom in there for sure. Um, but I do have the chapter guide here. So I wanted to use this podcast to 
sort of enlighten my viewers as far as um, some of the stories that you tell in there. Um, obviously, you know, an hour is not going to be long enough to tell them all, but, you know, give them some ideas and some and some game changing nuggets that they can at least contemplate, marinate on or maybe even use in their own business. So in the first chapter, it says uh, G.I. Joe's humbly mind their flanks. What do you what do you mean by that? What was the lesson there? Yeah, it's. So the way the book is, is structured, well, let me step back and first of yeah, all yeah, talk about that the book itself is is a start off as a memoir. And I, I didn't really want to write this book. Um, Why did you write it then? Well, to be honest with you, um, it was going to be a memoir just to maybe basically capture some of the force guy gump like moments in my life that mm. I just thought, you know, I got to put this on paper because our minds are really good for coming up with ideas for creativity, but retaining information, not so good. Hence, you know, why we should journal and write things down. And, you know, my coach says to me all the time, we don't learn from what happens. We learn from reflecting on what happened and unpacking the lessons, completing the loops, going through, <clears throat> in some cases, a grieving process. And, and then from that, choosing again. So I, I, I thought it would just be helpful for me to do this memoir. And what I found on the other side of it was cathartic. I, since I've learned there's something called narrative therapy, where when you write about uh, your life, about the things that happened and then you start to unpack it, there's a healing process that happens for you. I mean, I literally found myself in, in points in my life where I was, or points during writing this that I was in mm -hmm. tears um, just because there was things that I was unpacking and discovering. And I don't know, I, 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 I tend to go through life and try and just, you know, uh, glaze over the tough times and just move on and just like That's water the yeah. back. Yeah. Men I think men tend to do that, yeah, um, that. but that's not really helpful for you to really understand more about yourself, your belief systems and, and your values and, and what it really means. And the, the flip side of that is success as a sake teacher, because when you're succeeding, there's no reason to stop. You just keep going forward. But yeah. um, I think it's really important that we, we take the time to reflect. And so from this, uh, this was an experiment for me just to do that. And of course, because I'm a toy guy, I decided, Hey, why don't I just make this playful? Because Play is actually a part of, important part of our humanity. Um, it's how we develop as humans. When we're playing, we are problem solving. We're learning how to, uh, to develop social skills, and we're learning how to develop our own personal skills in the process of playing. So, and toys are a facilitator of play. So, I used chap. I used classic toys that you would know about. Uh, talked a little bit about the origin story, and then unpack some of the lessons of what those toys are meant to taught us, teach us. And then I, I. Um, tell my own stories from the toy business. And typically it's wisdom for my wounds. It's things I did wrong and what were the lessons and I kind of tied them together. So chapter one, uh, GI Joe's humbly mind their flanks. Mm -hmm. uh, it, so it tells the story of GI Joe's and where they came from. And it kind of brings it to, you know, who are the modern day GI Joe's? Well, the modern day heroes that we, we revere are the Navy SEALs. And the Navy SEALs have a couple uh, common sayings. One is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And the other is advance while protecting the flanks. And the two actually coexist in terms of how they, when they think about a battlefield and how they are advancing, why they're doing both those things at the same time. So advancing to protect your flanks is uh, the idea that you can only advance to the extent that your ability to actually protect yourself from any kind of attacks on the backside. And as I think about it from business, <clears throat> you know, as a business perspective, we're supposed to grow. That is something we're all designed to do. Um, in fact, businesses don't sit in stasis. I don't believe that exists. But if you're growing a business, you have to also recognize that you're stressing the business. And so stressing it breaks things. And, you know, some growth is healthy and some growth is unhealthy. Uh, growth at all costs is an example, which I've done many times in my life, um, tends to break things within your business. And there's three areas identified that are going to be constantly breaking that need to be reinvented. And that is the people you hire and or surround yourself with, uh, the systems that you are building to actually keep everyone singing from the same song sheet, and then the cash that's required to actually continue to grow the business. And, you know, the problem with the third one is that most entrepreneurs focus on vanity metrics. Um, they're, they're just simply thinking about top line growth, where really, the truth is, if you've been in business long enough, and people like you and I who've come from bootstrap companies, we understand the truth of this, that top line's vanity, bottom line sanity, and cash flow is reality. And if you're building a business, you have to be thinking about what do I need to keep my cash flow uh, flush? Because you run out of cash <laughs> and you're dead on the field. 
So, so that is the idea of advancing and protecting the flanks and then slow is smooth, smooth is fast. You know, when you're a young startup and you're a generalist doing everything, you can be frantic. You can do quick, nimble pivots and just go here, there and everywhere and just respond to the needs of the business. But as you start to go from startup to scale up and you build maturity into the organization and you add team members, that kind of frenetic motion creates whipsaw within an organization that ends up frustrating it. People th really thrive under uh, simplicity, certainty, and your confidence in being able to deliver it. So when you're whips on the organization, all those things get broken. So I talk about how it's about making less decisions, but better decisions and making sure those decisions ultimately are congruent with, you know, what are goals, uh, mission, vision. But the idea being is that <clears throat> your goal should be in concrete, but your plans in sand, you should be able to shift and move, but do it in a way that doesn't whipsaw the organization. And the final piece to all of it, the reason humbly is added to that is that the virtue that we look to when we think of, um, you know, this references the GIs from back in the, the 40s and 50s that, you know, defeated the Nazis and then the Korean War. The number one virtue of heroism was humility, was the fact that they were doing this selflessly. In fact, um, I'm currently in my place in Florida, and this week is Heroes Week because uh, we have um, Remembrance Day this coming uh, weekend. And so every, every workout is dedicated in honor of a fallen soldier. And as I've been listening to the stories that they've been telling every day, they talk about a soldier and they talk about the family and what, what happened where they were. The one thing that is common is that they were humbly serving their country, doing something in another place and had selflessly sacrificed their life for the sake of a cause. So the humility piece is really important because when we're not acting humility, we actually go from being a hero to a villain when it's mm -hmm. self-serving. So it's just pieces together kind of the, the necessary attributes that we need to be thinking about as we're growing and advancing our, our enterprises. Um, sounds like the entire process for you is making your wounds your work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite quotes that came from you is that uh, your scars are a reminder that you're stronger than what tried to kill you. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, I, I, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think, that this is, <laughs> we, we've, we've, we've shared lots of stories together, but what the thing I've come to learn is this, is that to, to truly be human, there's a few things you need. You need, you need food, water, companionship, shelter, but add to it struggle because your struggles will either build a strength into you or beat it out of you. You decide, but it is a part of your evolution as a human. And, um, so yes, my, my lessons as of many of yours have come from, you know, the, the struggles and and hopefully the wisdom that you unpack from those wounds. Yeah, it's it's chaos, man. Chaos is a massive teacher, right? 100%. Um, chapter two is outlined as we only play Monopoly with others. What's the um, what's the deal with that? Yeah, this is a, a fun chapter. I actually learned a lot about myself through this as well as just uh, the, you know, when I think about Monopoly, we think it, it's a game about greed because uh, you're trying to like own the Monopoly board. And the fascinating history of Monopoly is that the original uh, creator of Monopoly was a, a lady who actually was trying to do the opposite. <laughs> she was trying to prove that socialism is a better system and that the government sh should own all the land. So she created two games, one that basically demonstrated that uh, we should live in a system where the government owns all the land and that we are basically renters. And the other was that, um, you know, capitalism would uh, would flourish and that that, that would be it would, it would be self-revealing that it was a broken system. And mm -hmm. we know that the rest of the story is that, that her original game did not work. And the one that focused on a capitalist uh, approach is what ultimately became what we know today. Um, but look, I talk about that the problem with both capitalism and socialism is they focus on one problem, which is greed. One being the antithesis of greed and the other that you should embrace it. And I actually think that whenever we've seen those lived out in full, uh, we've seen that it digress to tyranny and broken systems. And, um, and so <clears throat> I talk about the, the third alternative, which is the word free enterprise. And I know it just seems like a, a, a nuance, but if you think about it, what it means, free enterprise, the idea that we're free to pursue enterprises and that the enterprises that we're actually building are bringing more freedom and value to the marketplace and those around you. That actually is an empowering idea. And <clears throat> the problem with pure capitalism is that pure capitalism is focused on greed and that it basically is 
using people to acquire things. Where free enterprisers really look at how do I take things to help build value and meaning into people, and and so I just I contrast these two. Uh, I talk about you know the, uh, the the most important things in life <clears throat> because I think we're all led down this path that we should be focusing on how do I have uh, or do these things. And you know I've spent a lot of time with Colin and we talk about the be do have triangle, but most of us are really at least I am susceptible to having or doing as the things that drive me to who I am today. Yet, if I ask you or your listeners and said, hey, who is, what are the most um, memorable moments of your life to this point in time? I bet you if I asked you the top three memories, it would be the birth of your daughter. It would be some vacation you took with um, uh, your significant other. It'd be a memorable uh, challenge that you overcame uh, or some kind of business um, milestone that you hit. In other words, there are things that focus on what I call the four C's, which are challenges, contributions that come in the form of either charity and or creativity, and meaningful connections with people who matter. Whereas the media and advertisers focus on that you're not enough and you will only become more if you have the four P's, which is power, prestige, possessions, and pleasure. And so I, I use these as a great filter when I'm thinking about you know my motivations behind why I want to do something or have something to ask the question, is this going to build more of the four C's in my life? Is this going to create more contributions, connections, creativity, or meaningful charitable outreach in my life? And if the answer is no, then typically it's not the right choice for me to make at that time. And um, it's been a helpful framework for me in terms of how I think about what I should be pursuing at this moment in my life and what's ultimately going to bring me lasting and enduring joy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then in the third chapter, it's um, distilled down to in Jenga, some blocks you can't move. Hmm. Yeah, this, uh, this actually goes back to um, my time in New York City. So I was in New York on 9-11. I had an office that was 20 blocks away from uh, the World Trade Centers. And we watched uh, that tragic day happen in real time. And <clears throat> it's kind of this contrast that, you know, minutes before that I was in this very important business meeting. Um, I, at that time, my family was far away. I was working there. I'd been there for many days. I think we'd been there for maybe a couple of weeks. And, you know, I, I thought that what was happening in that meeting was the most important thing. Yet, as I stood on that street corner, watching the panic and the chaos of what was happening that day, uh, nothing <laughs> that had happened in that building mattered at that point. The only thing that mattered was really, thinking about, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the moment and wanting to be with the people that I loved and cared for the most. And <clears throat> so I use that as a reference point to talk about Jenga. And in Jenga, there's, uh, if you've played the game, you know that there's foundational blocks that can't be moved. And then there's flexible blocks that you have to move carefully. And I align that with the idea of values, that we have values and our values are where we invest our time. So with our time, we, you know, we, we, we say all these, we espouse all these virtuous things about what we believe in or what we think is important. Yet, if you audit your calendar, like if you say your fitness is important, well, then I should be able to audit your calendar and look and see, oh, yes, you've invested every day consistently a certain amount of time in fitness. Same thing comes down to your family. You say your family is important. Well, let's take a look at your calendar. <laughs> it's a great auditing tool. Is that true or not? So I've identified for me what my uh, values are. And some of those are actually foundational values. For me, it's my faith, my fitness, uh, my finances, and uh, my family. Those are the things that I'm not negotiating, that there's something I'm investing in on a daily basis. And my calendar should show that that's true. Likewise, I have some flexible values. For me, that's fun, friends, uh, refining, which is doing personal development and growth. And, uh, and then finally, freedom, which is just working on things that allow me to grow my circle of influence. But those things, they have flexibility to them, and you can move them carefully. Although I think that they're all important. It's just a matter of prioritizing what's the most important. And then the final thing here is that not all time is equal. Um, there are seasons of life. Uh, when you're starting a startup, it requires an incredible amount of focus. 
you know, when Elon's rockets takes uh, 90% of the fuel on board just to get outside the atmosphere. So there's an extraordinary amount of intensity required for that period of time. Likewise, when you're starting a startup, you know, and I know that it takes a bunch of time and effort to get that thing going. So for a seasonal life, you actually have to be willing to have out of balance. But the idea being is that it's for a season, it's not forever. It's about knowing that and having the guardrails to make sure that you stay within that. Mm. Chapter four, Spider-Man versus himself. What's that about? Well, this is something that I think every human struggles with. Uh, certainly founders, certainly I personally have struggled with this. The idea that if you think about Peter Parker, and there's the whole backstory of like the Marvel superheroes that prior to that, uh, the DC superheroes were super, they had no flaws, but the Marvel superheroes all were very human and they had broken sides of them. So Spider-Man, Peter Parker was this awkward schoolboy who had uh, lived with his aunt and uncle and had a hard time connecting with girls. <laughs> Yet on the other side of that, he's the savior of the city and he's a superhero that does these incredible things. And it just speaks to the imposter phenom, which is what it was originally called before it became the imposter syndrome. And that within all of us, there is a, a worth issue. And in this part of the book, I talk about um, my bankruptcies, uh, how I had over a million dollars of friends and family money that was in those bankruptcies and how so much of um, my worth was caught up in, in the businesses. You know, I had birthed this business and it was a part of my identity. And this is what I believed was my representation of, of my life uh, mission at the time. And I didn't know it at the time that that's broken, that ultimately I'm not my business. My business is a reflection of some of me, but ultimately it's not me altogether. And I just talk about going back through and what are the belief systems that we have in terms of if we have results and actions and attitude that we see above the surface of a of our lives, what's down below? What is the inner, inner character and what are those belief systems that drive that? And also talk about that, look, within all of us, there are, uh, there's a propensity to incredible good as well as incredible bad. Um, you know, Alexander Solonitsyn, uh, I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but he said, if only we could eradicate evil from uh, humanity, but the line of good and evil goes through every human heart and who's willing to cut away a part of their heart. And it just speaks to that we all have been given this gift of imagination. And with that, we can create incredible abundance or incredible scarcity, incredible hope or incredible anxiety. We choose. And it's, a, it's incredible to have that power of choice. And it's also realizing that we all have it within us and that we need to make sure that we feed the, the wolf. <laughs> so we talked about in our last podcast, the white wolf and the dark wolf that lives within all of us. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the, the chief and his grandson are talking and, and the grandson says, Wh which one wins? And uh, the chief says, whichever one you feed. That doesn't mean, so if you're feeding the white wolf of more abundance and hope and uh, building value, that doesn't mean the dark wolf ever goes away. It's just pushing it and shrinking it to as small a part of our being as possible. And our choices daily will determine um, how that happens, including you know, things like this, your community, like surrounding yourself with people who actually are either going to be engines in your life and help build you up or anchors and drag you down. And uh, one of the things I've come to learn about how do you identify the engines in your life? They're the real friends who will celebrate with you. Um, so struggles through struggles and celebrations, how you find out who your, who your real friends are, because mm -hmm. during struggles, your real friends will stand beside you and support you. And celebration being is that when you're winning, that they're actually routing for you. Cause I've come to learn that most people want you to win, just not much more than them. Your real well, friends. Well, you can always tell who your real friends are. Cause when you're winning, they're not applauding. Right. Yes. The other yeah. thing that's noticeable too is, is, is your true friends will uh, like bust your chops and they'll talk shit to your face, but they'll always protect you when you're not around. Like they'll always manage your reputation in such a way that nobody can disparage you, you know, to your back if you're in the same room sort of thing. I like what you've sort of described here because, you know, it's funny because we haven't sat together in a long time. And a lot of the conversations that we used to have in forum back in the day are some of the topics that I've talked to my audience and my channel. And now you're sort of paraphrasing as well. Like we're talking about the uh, decision sequence between belief systems, choices and results. Right. 
And mm. I've covered that many times. I can see you've added that in this chapter, which is a huge irrelevant point. So um, just get the book, guys. I'll I'll drop the link in the description um, after the show. But um, actually, here, I've got it up here on Amazon. I'll just put it in the live chat for now. But I'll put it in the description as well afterwards. Um, your next outline is on Chapter 5. And you mentioned Etch-A-Sketch of Hope. Yeah. So we hear this all the time that hope is not a strategy and yep. I actually disagree. Um, oh, okay. I think any strategy that doesn't begin with hope is a lost cause. There's two things that motivate our humanity, uh, hope and fear. Mm -hmm. um, people could say love and I would say, yes, love definitely is the most powerful antithesis to fear. However, the precursor to love is hope. I had to hope that my wife would date me before I could learn to love her. So, um, Hope is imagining a better future, whereas anxiety is imagining one that's worse. And um, so knowing that, and you and I, in our last conversation, we talked about um, playing to win, playing not to lose, that, mm. that, that philosophy of seeing teams on the field where, you know, when a team's ahead and they've got a lead and then they stop playing to win, they start playing not to lose. And this mm. other team is thinking, well, hey, we're not far away. And so they start playing to win. And how many times we see in those games, the team comes behind to win the game because hope is a stronger skill. Fear is more natural. It's just not optimal. Mm. Whereas we should be focusing on hope. So the idea behind Etch-A-Sketch is so great is that the thing that's beautiful with Etch-A-Sketch is that whenever you screw it up, you just shake it and start again. <laughs> and in my life, I've had, uh, you know, seven different adventures in business. I think actually I'm now into eight different adventures in business. And most of them have been failings, things that I have not won at. Um, but you're either winning or you're learning. And my learnings happen to be very large. And the, the whole point is that you get a chance to unpack what, what were the lessons there, what, take those lessons, apply it to the go forward, and then choose again and not be a victim to what actually happened in the past. So um, I'm just a really big believer that the most important thing we could be focusing on is building more hope, which leads to creativity and abundance to build and design a future the better for ourselves. If you're just hoping as a navel gazing exercise, it's not helpful. It needs to have the most important virtue, which is courage. And Aristotle actually identified the original four virtues, which he said were justice, prudence, temperance, and courage. And courage is the cardinal virtue because the other three don't matter if you don't exercise courage first. And the best definition I've heard of what is courage, it's that bliss point between recklessness and cowardice. It's taking action despite the uncertainty, but doing something. So hope is not a strategy if you're just willing to just think about it. But it, before you can actually have the courage to take action, hope has to be the precursor of imagining a better future. Yeah, you're viewing it through the lens of the entrepreneur. I think I think the vast majority of people out there that rely on hope as a strategy, it's a losing strategy just because it's it's like, you know, well, I'll just hope tomorrow fixes itself. I'll just hope, you know, I can improve something or I'll win the lottery. You know, it's like a pretty bad plan for success in life. But, uh, <laughs> but I love how you're leaning on this from the angle of the entrepreneur's mindset because it, it definitely ties into playing to win, yeah. Uh, I think that's, but I think that's a great point. Like, yeah. you know hope without a plan is delusional so it's, there has to be it's just masturbation you know is that's what it right. is. like you're not actually doing anything productive it's it's just you know spinning your tires um chapter six assemble the perfect toy box man talk to me about well that. this is uh this is where i tell people i got my you know i don't i don't have a mba in um from a prominent school but i have my phd in dumb from the school hard knocks uh <laughs> from doing this all the wrong ways so uh i have hired and uh, fired and done all the wrong things uh, as it relates to building a team. But here's the most important thing. Once you've got, so there's four phases to a company, right? There's a startup phase, there's a scale-up phase, there's a sustaining phase, and then hopefully there's a succession phase. So once you've gotten through a startup phase and you're now into scaling, there's no way if you're planning to build something of uh, significance, you can do it on your own. You need to start to bring in people that actually can help you scale and get it to a sustainable place where it's profitable and enduring. And, um, you know, I think it's Dan Sullivan says, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, we, we, we see ourselves as superheroes. We're superhuman. We're willing to work hard and long and, and do all the extra. And so most of us can imagine building a business, uh, twice as big as, as what we have now. But what you really need to think about is 
how do I do it 10 times? And if you come to a 10x result, you'll recognize there's no way you can do it with your own bravado and um, ability to, to heavy lift. So it means you got to go find people. And the problem with entrepreneurs, um, there's two things. Number one, we're optimists. We see the possibilities in everyone. Like we, we look at the people and we can say, oh, I see that person's potential to be such a great human and do such amazing things in my company. But until they see it first in themselves, it doesn't really matter. And the second is we like to hire people we like. <laughs> so uh, I go through and tell some horror stories of some bad hires I've made, uh, how that, you know, I ended up hiring some mercenaries and really I needed to find missionaries. And uh, I kind of walk through how that's evolved to what we've created today, which is basically a system to protect me from myself of ensuring that we only get A players uh, who can help build uh, our A team. Because if you're going to go, you know, business is battle. And if you're going to go into the trenches with teammates, you need to make sure that you're looking over your shoulder and that, okay, I I'm confident this person's got my back. That <laughs> If I'm going to war, this person I want alongside me, I don't want to be questioning whether or not they're going to be, you know, the weak link uh, or they're going to suddenly run retreat at tough times. So if we're knowing that's true, based upon the fact that your competitors want to wipe you out, the market's not in favor of you, you literally are fighting for the survival of your business, as well as the families who depend on it, then you need to ensure you have the best functioning team uh, that's capable of doing that. And we think nothing of it when we see sports teams trading out players or trading out coaches even, because they're trying to build the best team to win the championship. So we should treat organizations the exact same way. And this chapter goes through and talks about a bunch of things that I recommend in terms of how do you find the right players? How do you then retain them? And then how do you build um, a cadence that empowers them to unleash their possibilities to advance the organization. If you get it right, it's exponential in terms of outcomes. Yeah, human resources are always a um, a difficult area. I've you know I've gotten to the point where I generally don't get involved in business now if I need employees because um, you can now structure a business in such a way where you don't need to rely on human resources. So so getting it right really matters. When you don't get it right, you really suffer. Like you really know. There's there's chaos and drama in your life if you have the wrong people on the bus, as they say, right? Hundred um, percent. Chapter seven: Never waste hula hoop moment momentum. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> one of the things I found out about myself, and seems to be pretty common with a lot of founders, is that we're really good at starting things and often good at finishing things. It's the messy middle, the in betweens, where we don't do so well. And we'll often get a business up and spinning and we'll get some momentum going and then all of a sudden get distracted by other shiny objects that are out there oh, uh, trying cool. to get. <laughs> yeah. And I'm guilty of it. I've got a T-shirt. I'm a part of that uh, that uh, recovery organization to try and fix those problems. But it's really about it takes a lot of effort and energy to get that flywheel spinning or in this case, the hula hoop spinning. And then once you do have it spinning, let's make sure that we completely uh utilize all the potential that's there and one of the metaphors that i actually got from darren hardy that i think is a really great uh example of this it's like if i took a, a bottle of coke and i shook the bottle of coke and then released it there would be this explosion of you know sugary goodness that would come out of the bottle and i have an option at that point i could either put a straw in and extract the rest of the the cola out or I could go shake another bottle and it would just keep going, leaving the vast majority of the potential still in the bottle because only the top is what sprays out to leave a lot behind. And so taking that philosophy and that idea to your business, what do you need to do to optimize and build the most value out of the flywheel once you get that flywheel spinning? Because look, the odds in the mortality rate in business are pretty high, right? I mean, most businesses fail. Um, and actually, most businesses fail not from starving from lack of opportunity it's from biting off more than they can chew so it's about getting focused on getting a flywheel spinning and then once it's flinning spinning to optimize it to ensure you're extracting all the value and uh and making sure that you understand how how to do that interesting um do you have any productivity hacks that you use today like do you have a top three list that you need to rely on a daily basis productivity hacks like in terms of how do I opt? I, I mean, that, that's a broad sort of stroke. Give me some context of what you're looking for in terms of what what specifically you want to be more productive at. Do you have any non-negotiables when it comes to making sure that you're as productive as possible? Because it's one of those things that 
I found myself that I've struggled with personally, you know, as I've gotten older and I've sort of like narrowed myself down to a company of one sort of thing is how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep yourself productive? You, you always have distractions. I mean, you're generally working from home. Mm. Um, so, so there's a few, few tools that I've, you know, put in place, but I'm just curious, you know, is there anything that you've relied on that you found most useful in your day-to-day life now? Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's a great question. I, here's what I tell you is that, um, I'm not looking for more complicated tools. I'm looking at ways to keep it simple. Mm. Um, you know, I would say my greatest hack is my Sunday planning session where I basically lay out my week. It doesn't take long to do it, but just, you know, kind of reviewing back. I say in business, you need a telescope and a microscope. You need a telescope to kind of zoom out into the future that you're trying to create, make sure you're clear on where you're going. And then you come back and look at a microscope of like, what are the actions I need to do today and for the week ahead that are going to move me towards that as a part of my weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual priorities. Um, and so when you get that context, my find my, my, my Sunday planning session really is helpful to then just lay out, here's all the things. And I, I just need to write it all out in paper, all the things I'm thinking about. That doesn't mean I'm going to do all those things, but if I just write it out for whatever reason, getting out of my head onto paper. And I ch- honestly, I've tried typing it in. I've tried other tools. I just think having paper, it's low tech, but it's just for whatever reason, it kind of kinetically connects with me. And then once I've laid that out, you know, the Ben Franklin process is go through your list and say, okay, what is critical to advance in this week? And those become your A's. What is nice to have? Those become your B's. And what's relatively trivial? Those become your C's. Mm -hmm. And the A's are your priority. And typically those items fall into the Covey quadrant of uh, urgent and not important. Whereas, you know, I actually encourage people to go back and look at, by the way, I just recently reread the seven habits <laughs> and I'd read it many years ago and you know, the book hasn't changed, but I've changed. And I can say, honestly, this may be one of the best books, if not the best book ever written in terms mm-hmm. of just personal mastery and focusing what's important, but that quadrant of making sure you're focused on what's uh, uh, not urgent and important as much as possible. Cause those are the big rock items that we need to advance our life that the rest are gravel and sand that just fill up your time really easily. So auditing yourself at the end of the week too is something I think it's super important. Yeah. And for those guys watching that don't know the book he's, he's talking about, it's Dale Carnegie, the seven habits of highly effective people. It's, it's definitely one of the top five business books you should read for sure. Um, so you've got chapter eight distilled down to stay pliable as Play-Doh. Explain that. Yeah, look, um, if you've played with Play-Doh, you know that it's fun when it's pliable, but when it gets hard and brittle, um, it's it's no good. And so I liken that the softness of Play-Doh comes from you working the Play-Doh, right? You let it sit over time, it gets hard and eventually goes brittle. And that softness comes from leaning in and adding energy to it. And I liken that to in business that in order for you to build meaningful relationships, you need a baseline of trust. Um, the two most important decisions that you make in life is who do you marry and who do you get in business with? Uh, those will highly (laughs) influence your, your joy and happiness factor in life. And for those relationships to work in any kind of measurable way, it needs trust. And without a lack of trust, you have no basis to actually build anything valuable. And Lencioni talks about this in, in the five dysfunctions where trust is a baseline. If you have trust, you're actually willing to get into conflict with each other, not about who's right, but what's right. You're pushing each other to get the best outcomes. In your best relationships, if you have that trust, your partners will recognize that when you're leaning to something, it is because you're doing it out of love. You're doing it out of your concern. You're doing it out of the hope to build something better. And once you have people's ability to weigh in and buy in, there can be accountability, commitment, and then results. So uh, I I talk about as an example, you know, this is actually a company I co-founded that I got fired from. And I talk about how uh, a little bit of that story would happen. But the baseline is, is that we went from having some trust or I thought to developing artificial harmony where we were just sitting around and grin fucking each other. And, you know, it it didn't ultimately mean or or land the way that we hoped. So um, yeah. And it was an awesome experience because again, we don't learn from what happens. We learn from, uh, reflecting what happens and then reflect on a relationship here. I can recognize and see that we didn't have that important base layer to build the trust necessary to be able to do something meaningful with that company. So talks about those relationships and how to build more trust. Is there a, um, you know, I always 
say you want to watch somebody's behaviors uh, and if there's a conflict with the words, believe the behaviors over the words. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, for me, when it comes to trust, when it comes, you know, trust in a business relationship, friendships, uh, you know, with a chick, it doesn't matter. There's always a time frame that I'm going to assign where I'm going to compare what's said versus what's done. Yep. Right? So um, do you have a time frame where you assign trust to something like, how do you how do you get to that level of trust where you can just say you know here's the keys? Yeah, I, I think this is a a, a great point. I, I don't think it's given easily. Trust is something that's earned, not given. It takes years, even decades, to build and seconds to destroy, because it comes down to one uh, character uh, virtue, which is integrity. And integrity is say what you're going to do and then do what you say. And when people do that consistently and show up consistently with that, it builds trust. And when they don't, it breaks it. So hence why I say these, you know, two really critical relationships in your life, your, your, your life partner, as well as who you have as a business partner, if they don't have integrity of words and actions alignment, there can be no trust. So it's, it is, or it's a limited amount of trust. It's certainly not the kind of trust you're going to need to build any kind of meaningful relationship of which those two institutions require it. Chapter nine, surf lucky waves. What do you mean by that? So if we've listened to any of uh, how I built this Guy Raz uh, podcast, um, I love at the end, he asked the same question, how much of what happened in your outcome? Because he's interviewing, you know, these fascinating guests who've had these companies they've built and in most cases had some sort of an extraordinary outcome. And he always asks the question, how much of your success is because you were good, you worked hard or you got lucky? And it's always fascinating to listen to people's response. And the truth is, if, if we think about it, um, luck has an incredible amount to do with the outcome and luck can be distilled down into one word, which is timing, the right idea at the right time executed on. And so I talk about that, you know, surfing is, is such an amazing sport. I'm, I'm currently in my place in Florida. Uh, we get some waves here. So I attempt to get out there and surf, although, you know, being a landlocked Canadian, uh, you know, we don't get to do that very often, but it's, 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 What's so cool about the sport is that literally it is all about identifying the swell, swimming out to be in the right spot, paddling in at the right moment, and then standing up and riding the wave at exactly the right time. And if you get any of that wrong, it's a miss. You either get rickrolled into the whitewash or you miss the wave and it goes past you. And so I use that to think about you know business and how business is really aligned with that sort of thinking. And in general, I say, you know, any, any startup, there's kind of four critical elements that's required to take something that's a startup and become something that's scalable and ultimately sustainable. And that is you need a founder with a, um, an idea and ideas are like noses. Everyone's got them, but that's kind of baseline. You need that. Second, you need a different strategy, not a better strategy. Anytime you say it's better than you're comparing yourself to a market leader. So you're already talking about a minimal part of the market left over. So I talk about how do you create a different third is you need a team, a team of people who are actually going to help um, carry the mission and be the missionaries that take it to the finish line. And finally you need execution. And this is actually even more important than the team. And the example I use is that when team Canada sent all these uh, superstar NHL players to the Nagano Olympics back in uh, 98 it was the first time NHLers ever went. We had Messier, we had Gretzky, we had like the who's who of hockey going and we were going to for sure win the championship. We didn't even get a bronze. And the reason why is even though we had all these great players, they couldn't execute, they couldn't work as a team. So execution trumps the, the potential abilities of the team. So those are the four elements that are required. But above all of that, you need luck, meaning the right idea at the right time. And you know what? The right idea at the wrong time is still the wrong idea. And then I talk about that, you know, not all waves are equal in life, right? Like a North Shore wave is different than a wave in Southern California versus a wave in Florida. So the type of waves we ride will determine the type of outcomes that we can expect in business. And, uh, yeah, so it's it, again. I think the whole the whole point, though, get in the water and start paddling. You can't can't be watching it from the the shoreline. <laughs> yeah, there's always people that love sitting in the uh, the stadium watching uh, life. But uh, chapter ten says leave a Lego legacy. Lego is a big name today. It kind of was a big name when I was a kid, then went away and came back. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, you know, Lego's the ultimate toy. Um, these guys have, uh, first of all, it's a Danish uh, company and my ancestry is Danish as well. So there's some affection to that. And they are, they are now the largest toy company in the world, um, even though they're private. So it's not known, but they have incredible, they're like a top 10 global brand. And the story is actually fascinating too, because they uh, came from humble beginnings. They were originally a wood, um, a wood toy company that evolved into these plastic blocks. They almost went bankrupt in the early 2000s, which is shocking. Um, and it's just, it's amazing to see where they are today. So look, I think when we start off in our career, um, it's hard to know how we're going to be able to build anything of significance. And I kind of think of that the same way with Lego blocks. Lego blocks are just kind of a pile of blocks, lots of potential, but just blocks. And on their own, they're not that significant, but as you snap them together, there's things that we learn uh, along the way based on how we build it that ultimately create a structure that is beautiful and meaningful. And if you've created Lego structures, which it sounds like you have, you also recognize that once you've created a structure that that's pretty cool, that stands independent, that's pretty cool on its own. But ultimately when you create a landscape with a bunch of structures, that is awesome. So it's the idea of going from dependence to independence to interdependence and building a life that actually is creating more impact uh, around other people. Mm. And so, uh, you know, yeah, the chapter just uses the, the idea behind blocks and how do we create more meaning in terms of our lives of going from just being successful to significant and growing our circle of influence. And quite frankly, like what you're doing, like you are releasing your, your book, your podcast and uh, YouTube channel you've created, all of this is growing your circle of influence to be able to build value in other people's lives and is a part of the legacy of what you've created. You got a bonus section here that says red wagons are not meant to rust. I've seen a lot of rusty red wagons. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, this is true. I have seen a lot of rusty red wagons. I mean, Ben Franklin said that most people die at age 25. They just wait at 70 to be buried. Mm. And it's also said that the wealthiest place in the world is the graveyard where most people go with their best ideas and best intentions still within them. You know, books that were never written, songs never sung, businesses that were never started, that humans are the only species that are capable of being less than what's possible. So you think about it, a tree will grow as high and as big as it can. You know, squirrels will gather as many nuts as possible for winter as they can. Ants will, you know, collect as much food for winter as they can to support the colony. But it's only these, us as humans that have this choice to be able to be average or less than what's possible. And so the idea that at the end of my life, I want to know that I have found all of my internal potential and I've left it all behind on the field of life. Um, one of my mentors, Jim Rohn, used to say in life, you may not be able to do all you find out, but make sure you find out all you can do. And, um, you know, my dad, I reference in this book, <clears throat> So kind of crazy that at the front end of this book, my, my father passed away from COVID. And, you know, I know COVID had an incredible impact on the world in general, but when it happens that close to home, it's like, wow, this, this was real. And at the end of the book, my mother passes away kind of as a, a byproduct also of COVID. And so what I would say is it, 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 it was a softening process in terms of my ability to kind of lean in and understand, um, you know, the value of my parents in my life. But I, I reference that to say that my father, I recognize now the incredible value and principles that he instilled in my life. And, you know, he, he said something when I was young and it made such impact that I actually wrote it out and put it on a bed frame next to my bed. But he said to me, he said, Brad, in life, you're going to pay one of two prices, the price of discipline or the price of regret. The price of discipline is going to weigh ounces. It's going to cost you something. But the price of regret weighs tons and will crush you under its weight. And those words, they still haunt me, but they certainly haunt me at a young age. And in the mornings when I'd wake up and it'd be dark and cold as it gets in Canada, you know, I would read those words and to make the difference be whether I'd roll over or I'd roll out and embrace the discomfort and take on the, the possibilities of the day. And so this chapter is really about it. it how do we do that? I, I actually tell a story of running the ultra marathon in Hong Kong, which is a hundred kilometer race. Um, I'm not a distance runner. I'm not supposed to be. I was a sprinter as a kid. You know, I'm kind of built like you, Richard, and um, it's, uh, yeah, it makes it harder for guys like us to go and run long distances, unless you're David Goggins, I guess. But um, but it just, it's like, 
it was, it all came down to the, the curiosity of, was it possible? Did I have it within me to do this race, which actually was a legacy race from the Gurkhas who are the original badasses from world war two. So that's, uh, that's what that chapter impacts. That's awesome. Um, when does the audible version come out? Well, it's supposed to be out now. Um, but you know, did you read is, it or did you have somebody else read it? No, I actually narrated the, awesome. the, and I will say, I mean, did you do your book as well? Cause I, I have your book, but I don't have the audible one of it. I would just, yeah, the, get the, get the second edition when it comes out in audible because it's way better. I had my editor come here and Hmm. Um, he did the field reports as the editor in his own voice and the book itself, like the edit on the first one, it isn't the greatest. So I wanted to clean up like the shitty, um, the cuts and the ums and the breaths and stuff in there. So it's a bit of a task. I mean, you run out of like your voice goes away after a few days of doing it. I don't know if you found the same thing. I was just going to say to you, like, I, I thought, how hard could it be to read a book? It's but hard. It was like hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's coming out pretty soon then. So I'll grab that and the audible of my second edition should be out pretty soon. The editor's just doing the finishing touches. So I'll notify you guys when, when that's out, but grab Brad's book. Um, I've, I've, I've sat with him for, uh, what, what, what must have like amounted to months, you know, uh, in total during meetings and retreats and, um, you know, just social events and stuff like that. Solid dude. Um, fully co-sign anything that he puts out with his name on it. I'm looking forward to listening to the audio version of it. What are you working on today? Is it, is it still the, um, uh, case company with the recycled plastics for cell phones or? Yeah. Yeah. And I tell, I talk about this in kind of the Lego legacy. So, uh, we got a couple minutes. So I'll just tell you a quick backstory. So during my life as a toy maker, I've literally shipped billions of pieces of plastic around the planet. Um, always felt a little conflicted about it because most toys end up in landfill mm -hmm. uh, within 90 days of purchase. And people are like, really? Like Barbies and Tonka? And I'm like, no, probably not those, but it's the impulse things that you're next to the counter and kids mm -hmm. open them, play with them, break them, they go into the garbage. And that's the vast majority of toys sold. So when I uh, exited the toy business and had a chance to reimagine my future, uh, one of the things that I've talk about that I focused on was I want to work on things that ultimately made impact because I had a newfound freedom and I had the, the, the luxury to do that. And so, uh, became one of the co-founders of Pila and we make the world's first compostable phone cases. And, um, you know, that's a direct consumer brand and we've scaled that up to be a very healthy eight figure business. Um, and it's been a lot of fun doing that, but one along the way we ran into this challenge where people were sending back their phone cases to us. And we're like, no, 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 you don't need to do this. Just put it in your home composting bin. And they're like, well, we don't have a home composting bin. I'm like, we'll put it in your industrial composting bin. Well, our industrial composter doesn't take it. So we recognized it was just a lack of infrastructure. So that led us to develop Lomi. And Lomi is the worst, world's first uh, kitchen composter that takes all your organic waste and turns it into a nutrient-rich soil supplement while you sleep. Like you literally put your organic waste in, hit a button, and it processes it. And uh, we launched it on a crowdfunding campaign in April 2021, thinking maybe we would do 100,000, 200,000, something like that. Because you know Peloton, as an example, did about $250,000 in sales. Mm -hmm. We ended up doing $9.7 million for the sales. Wow. Um, and since then, we've shipped almost 200,000 pieces into the market and uh, have a uh, a group of raving fans because we've taken what's disgusting, which is food waste, and turned it into something delightful. And that pain point has been eliminated. And it also is this missing piece of infrastructure to ultimately allow us to unleash the clean, compostable economy. So, and it's aligned with my values and my beliefs. So I love, love what I'm doing. How cool is that? All right. So guys, check it out. Um, I'll leave the link in the description after I get off the show, but it's in the live chat right now. If you want to grab his book, um, you can follow Brad on Twitter at uh, twitter.com forward slash Brad underscore Pedersen, P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N. And uh, yeah, check it out. See you guys uh, very soon. Brad, stick around.